Welcome to Voices Rising Podcast. I'm Shelley. And I'm Sarah. We are two book lovers, writers, and publishers coming to you from the mountains of Colorado. Every week we bring you new topics about life, books, writing, publishing, and much more. Let us know what you're interested in hearing more about. We are here to connect with you and support you. Yes, Thanks. we are just like learning and growing and writing and just showing up and we're teaching ourselves a lot of things that we never knew that we were capable of, which is pretty, pretty powerful. Yeah, I think yeah. we jumped yeah. in sort of not knowing anything. About yeah, we were a little we were blind doing. and then we're like <laughs> ripping off the bun. <laughs> totally. So we're here today. We're with the author of Seven Drafts, Self-Edit Like a Pro from Blank Page to Book with Allison K. Williams. And I had to say, like, what a well-written book that you wrote here. I am like, I was so pleasantly pleased myself as like, I've been actually in a, like a year long break from my memoir. And I found myself like getting inspired and like reading, like how you are writing and all of your tips, such tangible things for writers to like help us. Yeah, and I love that. I'm so glad to hear it. I'm so glad to hear it. When I um when I was working on the book, I folded on proposal. Um, which for your listeners, sometimes when you do a nonfiction book, you write the whole thing, or sometimes you write what's called a proposal, which um includes the first three chapters of your book, and you talk about you know why does this book matter, who's going to read it, that kind of thing. And uh, when I wrote the proposal, one of the things I was really specific about was it's not all oopy spooky inspirational like bird by bird or on writing it doesn't make you figure out what the writing advice is you know god bless john mcphee he's amazing but you kind of have to figure out what he's telling you by you know reading between the lines and yet it's not just straight up you know strunk and white here's a rule here's a rule here's a rule and so i'm really glad that you felt inspired because that's really exactly what i'm aiming for that's awesome. Yeah, I also felt inspired. I've written my first memoir, but I've and I'm editing that, and so that's been very helpful. We were just chatting before you jumped on the call, and we were saying it's so interesting how we did intuitively do some of these things. We we're like, oh my gosh, yay! And talk about like confirmation of like, yeah. okay, we're on the right path. Well, and there was one of these chapters that you do talk about like following your intuition when you're writing like your memoir especially Mm -hmm. which is good because sometimes like when I was reading this in the beginning I was thinking oh my gosh did I do all these things oh I hope that I my characters are in place my protagonist my antagonist I was running through all that in my mind and then I loved hearing that or reading that about following your intuition also because I think that as writers we can get so in our head about our writing and that we lose like our whole you know, mission of our yeah, story because we're totally. worried about all the things and worried about like, is the are this is the reader going to understand what I'm trying to put out there? You know, I think that's a hard like you can over explain and make it boring for them, or you can under explain and lose them all. Yeah, exactly. Um, like I think as writers, we're we're worried that the reader isn't going to get it, so we want to put everything on the page, and that just makes the reader lean back because Mm -hmm. the reader goes oh okay it's all laid out for me there's nothing I have to figure out it's all very clear right here whereas when we leave space 
for the reader to engage by not telling them everything, they lean forward. They become the detective who is trying to assemble the clues, which I also think, especially in the case of a memoir, it brings the reader more into the narrator because part of the process of writing memoir is assembling the clues of, well, what happened? Why am I like this? Why, why did it turn out that way? Is there anything I could have done differently? How would I do it differently next time? And we want the reader to puzzle through that with us. You know, sometimes we think, oh, there's going to be a writing rule that if I follow it perfectly, my book will come out exactly right, and then it will sell a million copies. Mm, and, yeah. And there is no rule. I mean, we all want to think that publishing is a market, but actually it's a casino. And I would say the same thing. <laughs> book. Yeah. You know, sometimes a small, quiet book hits big and becomes really phenomenal. Nobody knows why. Sometimes an amazing book that a big five publisher has put a lot of money behind flops. And nobody yeah. knows why. I think it, it comes down to that. And I bet you guys have gotten this too. Somebody will come up to me and say, they're, they're you know, a first-time author, someone who has an idea, they have something to say, but they say, you know, I really want to know how to write a bestseller because I don't want to put the time in if it's not going to be worthwhile. Mm. And it's like, you know, after I peel myself off the ceiling and smile, <laughs> if we knew what made a bestseller, authors would only write them. Right. Authors would only purchase them and sell them on to the reading public. Totally. If only, if only we knew. Why would we write anything else? Right. <laughs> yeah. And we, I think as writers, we have to just like write what we're called to write. And I, you, I think you even talk about that too, is like, like write what excites you mm-hmm. to like follow through to mm-hmm. the end because it's a freaking arduous task. Yes. It's a marathon. It's like a freaking. And if you're bored, yes. <laughs> if you're bored by the subject as you write it, then there's no way in heck that your then readers gonna are going to be excited about it. There's yeah. no way. Right. I liked in your book too, how you would give like examples of kind of like a poor way to write something. And then you'd give an example of like a better way to explain something that was really nice because as a writer, sometimes we do just want to like write that narrative out. And instead of like maybe diving into that storytelling aspect of Mm -hmm. ourselves and finding our voice in that. So I loved how you included those in your book. Yeah. Thanks. And I think so many writers, when they're first starting, they get trapped in this thing I call special writer voice, where they feel like, oh, you know, it's it's writing, so it has to be elevated. I must I must peruse the books upon the mm. shelf. I don't walk to the store. I perambulate to the store. Oh, yes. Yeah. Because we think our own voice isn't good enough that somehow writing is this special, different animal, and and it's not. I mean, when you write a book. It's like you're telling the story to a friend, but better. Yeah. And like when we go to a party, we all have those party stories that we tell, you know, something crazy that happened in college or something, you know, wild that went on in our family life that we, you know, we've told the story a few times and we have a sense of this is where the audience is going to laugh. This is where I need to take a pause before I say, and then my mother said, and Putting it all together in a book is like telling that party story that we've told it a few times so we know how to tell it smoothly, how to tell it in a polished way, but it's still natural. It's still like we would share our own voice. And, you know, certainly some people write in very elevated voices. You know, one of my favorite writers of all time is Hilary Mantle, who wrote Wolf Hall, which is a wonderful book. 
a very elevated tone to the book. And yet you can still get that sense that it's the protagonist of the book. It is Thomas Cromwell telling us his story and his voice. And early in the book, it's simpler words, simpler concepts, because he's 13, 14, 15 years old. Later in the book, he gets more complex, he gets more subtle, but you still get the sense that you are the friend that he is telling the story to. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's something where new writers, and, and I suspect that you guys see this in your inbox as publishers, you want to just grab people and say, just tell us the story. Your voice is enough. Your voice is okay. Mm, that's such a powerful message that everyone needs to hear. <laughs> totally agree. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. Yes, I so love that. I'm curious, like what, I, in your book, you talk about being an editor and then deciding to write this book. Like what was the final piece for you to put together to say, I'm going to write a book about editing a book, right? You know, what happened was about, oh, it must have been 2013, maybe 2014. And I was speaking to a writer's group in uh, Bombay, India. And uh, I I had visited them a few times um, because I live in Dubai. And so Bombay is a short flight. Um, And we had had a, a, a live stream. It was back when Periscope was a thing. And we had had a live stream where we were talking about writing and editing. And at the end of the live stream, somebody asked, well, how many drafts do you need to write in a book? And I said, well, you want to do this and this and this and this and this and this. Seven. You want to write seven. And then I wrote a blog post about it, about, you know, seven drafts. And it just kind of snowballed from there. And to be perfectly honest, I love the joy of making words and I love making art but I also really firmly believe in art as a consumer medium. I make beautiful words because I would like to sell them to people. (laughs) And Uh, one of the nice things about writing a book is professional editing is really expensive. You know, I mean, if you're getting someone good who's genuinely going to help you become a better writer as you write the book, you're going to pay somewhere from the low to mid four figures, you know, and some editors are much more expensive than that. You can get people who are less expensive, but very often you get what you pay for. So always get a sample edit, but everybody can afford a book. Everybody can afford to, you know, pay 15, $17, get the book, go through the checklist themselves. Mm -hmm. And the more you can do yourself, the more helpful it's going to be when you finally get a professional edit or exchange manuscripts with a friend who is a better writer than you, who can now give you even more sophisticated feedback because you fixed all the easy stuff already. So for me, I really like as a professional, as a person who does this for a living, I like to have a variety of price points. And some of that is because before I was an editor, I was a circus performer. I love and that. And a lot That's of so what great. I did I was street performing. Yeah, I did uh, aerial acrobatics and fire eating and whip cracking. And so I cool. performed at festivals and I performed in theaters and I performed at corporate events, you know, all over. But what I loved the most was street performing. And what I love about street performing is you set up your show, you do the show and you try to do it so well that at the end of the show, even though people can walk away with no penalty, they still stand in a line to hand you money because they liked what you gave nice. them that much. And what I love about that model is 
everyone got to see the show. And then the people who could afford to pay subsidized the people who could not afford to pay. Mm. And so for me, it's really important that, yeah, you know, you can come and do a writing retreat with me in Tuscany and it'll cost you $3,500 plus plane fare plus babysitter, or you can buy my $17 book and it's got a lot of the exact same advice. You Mm. just have to put in more blood and sweat doing it yourself instead of having that handholding. But I really, for me, I mean, really, I, I think what I do is correct. So I want to share it with as many people as possible. And I want to share it with people in a form where they can afford it, even if they can't afford to come take a class or they can't afford to hire me as an editor, you know, and for the people who do take a class or hire me as an editor, it's a reminder of the, the stuff that they've learned and that they want to keep practicing. That was kind of a long answer. I hope that answer. It was a great answer. That's perfect. Really, yeah. That. I feel like this is a book I'm just going to have and reference all lot. the time. <laughs> yes. yes. Like all the time. Yes. And go back and reread. And, you oh know, my gosh, writer, I like dog-eared all of these I know. These you pages. should see all these pages. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to do that. I know all these things. Yes. And as anyone that's going to, like anyone that's interested in writing for any purpose, I feel like this book would help. Even if you're not thinking like, oh, I'm going to be published. I'm going to you know, get a publisher or whatever, like just being a better writer in general, any, and it goes so much deeper. I feel like your book goes so much deeper than I expected in terms of me too. The the whys and the what's behind the writing of like, you know, developing, like fleshing out your story and your plot and your characters and stuff like that was so helpful. And how you went into memoir, like really deep. And I loved like, the first thing, the vomit draft. Like, it's like, that is perfect. That yes. is like, you nailed right. it on the head. Just get like, it out. get it out. My get worst, out. yeah, like yes. one of my worst <laughs> habits is to go back and edit as I'm trying to do that first draft. Which you do too. Didn't you say you kind of do that a little bit? You do. Yeah. I do. So like, that's the thing too. There's there's writers who really need to just get out an incredibly rough crummy first draft because it is so much easier to fix a crappy draft than it is to fix a blank page. Mm. I think that for probably 60 to 70% of the writers in the world, that is the way to work. That's not how I work. Um, <laughs> okay. That makes I you feel a little better. <laughs> down and write, um, I write the beginning of the book. I write the end of the book. Wow. I write a couple of scenes in the middle. Then I outline and fill in everything I'm missing. That's brilliant. And as yeah. I'm going through that process, I will sit down and write somewhere between a thousand and two thousand words in a session, which for me is about two hours long. And that's about as much writing as I can do in a day. And I write fairly, fairly clean first drafts. Like if I'm throwing stuff out, I'm usually throwing out a whole chapter or I'm throwing out a whole scene rather than polishing up sentences. And then I usually begin the next day's work by going through what I wrote the day before, which kind of gets me back in the mental groove of the book and also gets me to like tidy, tighten, make everything as clean and crisp as I can. Um, I'm at the stage right now with a novel where honestly, this is probably like draft 30 or 40 at this point. I've been working on it for 10 years. 
And wow. I queried it in a couple of rounds and it was almost ready in the last round, but it, it wasn't quite ready. Um, I got the most heartbreaking rejection I've ever gotten because oh. I really just had so much hope and the agent was so excited by the subject. And then she sent it back to me. She's like, it's too slow in the middle. Ah, and I, it was the first time, it was good for me because it was the first time in my life I had ever experienced the feeling that a lot of writers have felt of, well, that's it. I'm not a writer. I'm never going to make anything again. Mm. I mean, it devastated yeah. me. It probably did not help that it was New Year's Eve in Darjeeling, India, and I was freezing my ass off in a hotel room made of concrete blocks. And I checked my email, and I'm like lying there, like weeping, oh, trying not to wake yes. to me. And and then about six weeks later, I started reading through, and I'm like, okay, scene one, girl in gun with girl with gun in cafeteria. Scene two, girl takes nap in library. Scene three, girl recounts to another character information that we already have from scene two. Oh, crap. It slows down in the middle. Oh, and but I, you and didn't it, realize that. It took six weeks for it to really sink in for me. And then I, you know, I've been polishing it. Uh, it's been my back burner project. So I did 10 pages a month with my local writing group because that's how many pages we bring in each month. And like a year and a half later, I have made it through the whole book. And I'm now at the stage where I have printed the entire thing out. Woo! And I went through and I color coded with my colored pencils. Where's the conflict? Where's the tension? Where's the change? Wow. And if a scene doesn't have conflict, tension, and change, what can I do to increase the conflict, the tension, or put a change in there? Mm -hmm. And I'm now wow. rewriting the whole thing where I type it from the document into the computer again from scratch, wow. which I really advocate. And every time I say to a writer, you need to have a draft where you print everything out, fix it on paper, and then type the whole thing again, they always look at me in horror as if I have suggested like, yeah. Dude, that that made my heart and drop. Six months later, they text me <laughs> and they say, "Oh God, you were right. I Thank did it, you. and it made yeah. my book so much better." Yeah. So I'm now at that stage, and and I'm really ready to like get this book out into the world. And for me, the real kicker is the agent whose rejection rejection crushed me is my agent now. So oh my goodness. <laughs> no. She previously rejected better. Bravo, lady. Yay. Good job. Good story. Yeah. Very good story. Proof that it works. Proof <laughs> that it, what is that draft that you recommend doing the the printing it out um, and then by hand, which I'm trying to remember, which draft was that? And then retyping it. I I think usually do it between your fifth and sixth fifth. draft. You know, what's so funny is I literally um, opened to, to the fifth draft. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. You want to do it like after you've had a beta read from like somebody you trust to tell oh, you, oh, hey, there's a big hole in the story or this smart. is hanging together or I don't like this character enough to spend six chapters with them. But you want to do it before you send it out to anybody like important. Like our beta readers are deeply important to us, yes. but you want to do this one before it's like, oh, it's the teacher who I promised she would read my thing and I can really only ask her once. One time. You know, so you want to do it before the draft that really matters. Okay. Wow. Hmm. And I can imagine yeah. how that could change so much because when you read something out and then you think about it, you could, you could just reword it and restructure it so much better. Like, I think that, yeah, yeah. I that. I'm going to be doing that. And as you, type, <laughs> as you retype, your body will tell you what doesn't belong in the book. Because if you find yourself going, oh, I don't want to, do I have to type that? Then nobody wants to read 
it. You know, mm. if you don't want to type it, nobody wants to read it. No one wants Let to it read go. it. Very You're good. Bad. And how much more work is it to sit there and try to massage and take out and rewrite something that's already there? It's, you know, it feels like it's less work, but it's actually probably more work yeah. because you're, you're trying to like change and alter and yeah, like maybe you just need to rewrite it, which yeah. like, like I said, my heart dropped when I read that. I was like, oh, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, yes. anything but that. Yes. But yes, I could see the, I could see the value for sure. Definitely. Yeah. And so I'm at the stage where, you know, I've been working on this book for 10 years now and I still... Uh, going into this draft, it's like, oh, this whole chapter does not belong. This scene does not belong. Um, I ended up trimming out 10,000 words when I, uh, when I went through the process of the 10 pages a week and trying to speed up the middle and make things more tense and more accelerated and fingers crossed because I got to say with this one, I really, it's the book of my heart, but I really am on the stage where it's like, okay, either this is it or it has to go in the drawer and I have to focus on another book. Mm. that's the do or die moment huh yeah Yeah. but it seems like your heart's in it to like keep that alive going for 10 years like good for you yeah and I mean not steadily you know it's had times where it's been in a drawer for two years yes it's really been just you know the the book I needed to write It's, it's funny because what I've published is writing advice and plays uh, but what I really love to read is young adult. And so both of the novels, the one that's nearly done and another one that I'm about halfway through are young adult novels. Mm, that awesome. sounds, yeah, that's yeah. a really good market too right now. Like a lot of people are finding that very successfully, you know, that young adult genre or whatever. Harry mm-hmm. Potter, man. As, yeah. as problematic as J.K. Rowling is, Harry Potter revolutionized the young adult market and to some extent the middle grade market as well, yeah, because yeah. all of a sudden people were reading across generations in a way that they had not previously been reading across generations. Like before Harry Potter, you might read a book that's the chapter book to your kid, but you're not necessarily picking up a chapter book for yourself as so an adult. True. I mean. I think it was Goblet of Fire where it really kicked in. And I was working still in theater at the time. And I was directing a a musical of Pinocchio in uh, Kentucky at an outdoor amphitheater in the woods (laughs) or something. So fun. uh, Sounds amazing. I love you. (laughs) I came into the day after Harry Potter dropped and everybody backstage has a copy of Goblet of Fire. The six-year-olds who are the little marionettes in the candy shop scene. The big bad guy who's the villain who's going to chop Pinocchio up for, I think his name is Stromboli, who's going to chop Pinocchio up for firewood. He's got his nose in Harry Potter. (laughs) Everybody is reading the same book and everybody's like, are you up to, don't tell me. Don't say. And (laughs) it became this really just unifying experience. and, And I think it totally revolutionized the market. And so now people have this sense of, Yes, we can write middle grade books that deal with quite sophisticated topics, but from a child's point of view. Mm. And I mean, yeah, Tree Grows in Brooklyn did that. It had always been done in some ways, but now it was being done in a big way, you know, and and like graphic novels have started being this giant thing in the past two or three years. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm teaching a webinar uh, in the middle of March about writing memoir for young adult and middle grade. And what's really hot right now is graphic novels and novels in verse. And it's because it gives early readers a chance to really immerse themselves in a book in a way that is very inviting 
especially to kids who might be intimidated by a whole page full of words, but, oh, look, this is a lovely poem and I can read it and I can feel the feelings and I can, you know, understand what's going on with the characters. And and that's been just a, a wonderful thing. I think reading is bigger than it's ever been, ironically enough. It is oh, kind yeah. of ironic, isn't it? It is. My nine-year-old hates reading, hates reading. But I got him the I Survived graphic novel books. And he loves them because there's stories and there's pictures and there's yeah. action and there's things happening. And he now, he literally told me, I love reading, Mom. When just like six months ago, he hated it and he would cry and snot and all the things. And so thank you, graphic novels, helping like encourage sure, our kids yeah. who don't want to read, like to become readers. And there's that like ever present allure of screen time that we didn't have as kids. Yeah. That's always like, would you rather read a book or do this shiny, fancy, beautiful, light filled screen? You know? uh, of and course it's like, the screen. The screen yes. is like beckoning, but thankfully both my kids are very, well, all my kids, I have Four, actually, yeah. but they're all very strong readers, and That's awesome. they also love to play Minecraft, so they just somehow balance that all in their heads. So. That's great. Yes. Well, and I think like things like Minecraft are great because at least they're creative. You know, they're building. True, true. I'm I'm remembering, you know, my childhood, and I was a big reader. And yes, we did play outside a lot more, but I mean, being a, a quote unquote free range kid in the eighties was basically acts of petty arson and torturing <laughs> other children until you got caught. Getting up to no good. You know, I mean, I, yeah. I, I like, what, well, what can we set on fire today? What can we throw at people? Oh, look, these berries are nice and hard. Let's throw them at people. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I'm guilty of multiple uh, things like that too. Yes. <laughs> I was like, go outside yes. and don't come back till it's dark kind of a kid. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Don't come home till the streetlights come on. Yep. And I remember my mother took us to the library once a week and we were allowed to take out as many books as we were years old. So if I was eight, Ooh. I could take out eight books. If wow. I was nine, I could take out nine books. And I loved that my mother ever restricted which section I could take the books out from. Like she would let me take out books from the adult section, which she had to check out on her card. Wow. Um, but she never what I could read and I mean sometimes it means we're all reading flowers in the attic uh you know but sometimes I'm reading you know the collected short stories of Mark Twain and and yeah just stuff that I think really influenced me a lot as a kid I mean I I wrote my first book when I dictated it to my mother because I wasn't able to write yet wow that's amazing powerful could you share a little bit of your journey of writing and in publishing your books and like finding an agent with us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So what happened for me with seven drafts was that I had previously um, in 2013, I wrote a memoir that was based on a blog and I queried 65 agents, got three requests for full, all of which came from referrals. So that's why it's really great to be friends with writers now and to help each other because one of my referrals Mm -hmm. came from a person who had been my intern in the circus company. And now he was writing books and he recommended me to his agent. And that's who I ended up with. Um, One of mine came from like my best friend in high school who I had known for, you know, years and years and years. So the memoir agented And then it didn't sell. And we were getting feedback from publishers that either they loved the voice but hated the story, or they loved the story but hated the voice. Uh, You're like, come on, my story. (laughs) And 
about eight and a half months into the process of trying to sell that book, I had um, gone to a writing conference in Florida and they did one of those things where there's a panel of agents and they read the first page of your book and the agents ring a bell when they would stop reading. And they got through my entire first page and nobody rang the bell. And there was a moment of hushed silence in the room and then everybody burst into applause. And I thought, oh, thank goodness. Maybe tonight at the student readings, I'll read a selection from this. And then I got my manuscript out because I had a paper copy with me at that point. And I'm leafing through and I'm going, okay, that's boring. Pornography, boring, <laughs> Oh God, I'm not reading that. Boring, boring, porn, porn, boring. And then I realized, oh, the book wasn't selling because the book wasn't good enough because I had written it before becoming medicated for depression. And the book reads like somebody who is in the middle of depression has written it. (laughs) And I called my agent and I'm like, let's let this one go. Let us part ways. Thank you so much for all you have done. This book is not going to sell because this book is not good enough. And what that taught me. And like for a while I was like, you know, maybe we'll sometime I'll rewrite it. But I realized, nope, that was a learning book. That's the book that taught me that I could write a book, that I could do the whole thing. It's like, it's like getting an MFA. It's not the MFA itself that counts. It's what I did to get the piece of paper that counts. And so at that point I had also started writing for Brevity, uh, which is a literary magazine dedicated to publishing flash nonfiction, which is 750 words or less by our definition. And Brevity at this point is probably, I would say one of the biggest names in flash memoir out there. It's pretty well respected. Uh, Dinty W. Moore, who's the editor in chief is a, a well-known literary writer, amazing guy. And I had gone to a different writing conference specifically to study with Dinty because I liked his work. And from meeting him, he asked me to start blogging for Brevity and become Brevity's social media editor. And so I started writing, writing advice twice a week. And what I had learned from the previous blog that became a memoir is having a reason to show up and write on a regular basis is powerful because it teaches you to show up and write on a regular basis. Now, When I write a book, I'm not a go to the gym, write every day, a hundred words an hour kind of person. I'm a binge writer. I get through my ideas and then just like a theater process, I do it all in a really short span of time after thinking about it for a while. Um, For seven drafts, I put together a really detailed proposal. I assembled a lot of the material and then I checked into a hotel for twice for one week periods and wrote 40,000 words each week. Nice. Got that done. Yeah. Um, so after not selling the memoir, I went back to querying the young adult novel and I queried the young adult novel and didn't really get any bites. And then I went to the Writer's Digest conference in New York. And at the Writer's Digest conference in New York, they had a pitching event. This was pre-COVID. This was very much pre-COVID where they had 65 agents sitting at tables in a ballroom and they released 250 writers into the ballroom and we had an hour. And every five minutes they rang a bell and you had to stop talking and move to the next person. Oh my gosh. Wow. And nobody there was my dream agent. So I had a printout with every single agent on it and what they represented was thinking that I would pitch a travel book that was currently in the proposal stage and I would pitch this young adult. So I had both a fiction and a nonfiction project ready to pitch. I had notes on every agent and I looked around and whoever didn't have a line in front of them, 
I went to that table. And so I pitched 15 agents in 60 minutes. Wow. And I'm going to say I probably pitched more agents than anybody else in that room, partly because I was ready to talk to anybody. And partly because if it wasn't the right book for the agent, I said, you know what? It doesn't seem like this is your book. Is that correct? And they'd say, yeah, it's really not. Thank you so much for your time. Let me give you to somebody else. So some of my conversations were only two or three minutes long. But the best conversations were the ones where it wasn't even so much about, do you want to represent me? It was conversations about the book where the agents asked questions. Well, what about this? Well, what happens then? And then how does this turn out? And that's when I realized, oh, the book needs another three chapters. It's not done yet. Mm -hmm. I haven't finished the plot. And so I would say to authors, if you ever get a chance to pitch an agent live, whether that's Zoom or in person, don't just think of it as you're auditioning for representation. Think of it as a chance to talk through your book. Is it working? What kind Mm. of questions are agents going to think when they get your query? Coming out of that, I had requests for fulls from the the young adult novel and from a travel essay book that I was selling. And uh, neither one of them really panned out. You know, the the agents who got the fulls just turned down the book. I pitched at another conference. The agent said, oh, it slows down in the middle. Um, Mm. And meanwhile, while I was there... I met an agent named Janet Reed who writes a blog called Query Shark. And if anybody's in the query trenches, I highly recommend you read Query Shark. And I also recommend you read Janet Reed's literary agent blog and go back in the archives. She's really straight up and she has a lot of great information. And what impressed me the most about Janet was that after her panel with another agent called Barbara Powell, and they were both, you know, answering agency questions, Janet came and sat in the hallway at the, the, I think it was the Hilton or something, maybe it was the Sheraton, but she sat in the hotel hallway outside the ballroom and she answered every single question that a writer came up to her with. She sat there for almost two hours Mm. answering questions and making sure that every writer felt like they were heard. And I'd been reading her blog for a good long time and it made me feel like, wow, this is really a lady with a lot of integrity. This is really somebody who impresses me. I've always been impressed by her blog. Now I'm also really impressed by her in person, too. Nice. And so I queried the young adult novel to her. She gave me that heartbreaking rejection. You know, it slows down in the middle. You know, and she'd been so enthusiastic. Send me the full. I love this story. Send me the full. I'm like, oh, God, you know. So then I put together seven drafts. And originally I thought, okay, I'm just going to self-publish this one. Um, I had previously self-published a book called Get Published in Literary Magazine, does what it says on the tin, mostly so that I would have something to sell at conferences where I was teaching because it's useful to, you know, have something extra that people can buy and it helps pay for your plane ticket Mm because a lot of conferences don't pay the speakers, which, you know, more power to And so I went to a conference called the AWP conference, the Association of Writers and Writing Programs. And it's a giant conference and it's very geared towards academia and literary presses. And they had a display floor with 700 booths of publishers, editors, you know, here's our new software for writing, everything that you might want to do. There were about 300, I would say, publishers there. And I spent three days walking the convention center floor and I talked to every single publisher just to find out, are you potentially a publisher for me for either the young adult or the travel essays or this new book on writing craft that I've got in my head, or are you not? And I can cross you off my list because I keep a long list and I put the cross outs on it too, so that I don't query somebody twice because I forgot, you know? Mm -hmm. And there were a couple of presses that were interested and were like, hey, send us your proposal when you've got it. 
And then um, I took another six months to get the proposal actually written and done. And that's something that writers should know too, is that when somebody says, send me your book, that offer is good for a good long time. You know, like if you realize, okay, it actually took another two and a half years worth of work for this book to be truly done the publisher is still going to be like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember you. I'm sure I did say that I would look at this. Let me look at it. And they would nice. rather that you take the time to make it as good as you can than go, oh, my God, I've got to leap on this offer and, and do it right away, and I'm not quite finished. And so I had a couple of presses that were interested, and six months later, at this point, I between, between the young adult, the memoir, the young adult, two more rounds, I had at this point queried probably close to 300 agents wow. and I had carefully researched every single agent. You know, what are they looking for? What are they talking about in their interviews? What are they doing on Twitter? When are they open? Oh, this one wants 50 pages as an attachment. And this one wants 15 mm -hmm. pages, but single spaced and pasted in the email. And this one, you need to stand on your head while you press send. <laughs> and everybody wants you to go through this different set of hoops. Yeah, and it yeah. gets very frustrating. And so when it came time to query seven drafts, my glasses fall apart. Yes. When it came time to query seven drafts, I was done. I was just really freaking done. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I'm either going to self-publish it or I'm going to go with one of these smaller presses that was interested to begin with. But what the heck, I might as well query. And I looked up a list of 20 agents currently looking for nonfiction. And I wrote my query letter and I did the bare minimum of personalization, like one sentence at the very beginning. And every time I hit send, I thought, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Over querying at that point. I yes. had been querying for 10 years, you know, and gone through an agent and not sold a book. And at the last minute, I thought, well, I should query Janet because I don't think she represents writing craft books or this kind of nonfiction. But she always says in her blog, query me anyway, because you never know. Yeah. And so I queried Janet. She was agent number 21. And I got an email from her 45 minutes later saying, let's talk on the phone, please. Oh. And we talked on the phone about later and she offered representation and said you know take a week to let all the other agents know and to think about it and everything and uh, then Janet became my agent awesome. so basically after 10 years of querying I got an agent in two weeks That's so exciting! good for you good. Yes. yeah you're such a good storyteller mm -hmm. thank you and it really did take all of those yeah. steps to be ready for that stroke of you know quote unquote luck it really is about right. being in the right place at the right time and being prepared. I feel yeah. like that's the so, like you just stated, like to be an author, to publish a book is the same as like to be a musician and make it big in the music industry or anything. It's like those people didn't just make it overnight. They've been doing it for 10 years without recognition. They've been going to the writers' conferences. They've been writing blogs. They've been querying mm -hmm. and all this stuff for so long. And then you feel like, oh, they just came out of nowhere. Like, no. <laughs> they <laughs> no, didn't no, come no. out of nowhere. It's like yes. years of hard work, blood, sweat, and tears, dedication. Yeah. And I love that, you know, there's just the stick to that you just keep going. Persevering. Yeah. Yes. Believing in yourself, believing in your writing leaving in your work and yeah. just keep putting it out there, you know? Right. When it came, so... You, when... I love the story. 
Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just thinking about, um, so when you got your agent, how did it, what was that process like of when, like finding a publishing house for you to go to? Like, how did that, how'd you navigate that? Well, the first thing we did was we looked at the small presses that had already made offers and said, hey, we're interested. And that's one of the things you can do as an author if you're querying. If you want to, if you want an agent, query agents. If you want to go directly to a small press, query a small press. But if you're querying a small press and one of them makes an offer, you can then go to the agents and query agents within your email headline, offer of publication received. And it might or it might not be a big enough deal to get an agent interested in representing you, but it can be the leverage that gets you representation. Mm -hmm. I had small presses interested, but nobody had made an offer when I queried. Um, And so we went back to the small presses that were interested, and then we also queried some larger places as well. There's a couple of really good writing craft books coming out this spring from larger presses that could not take my book because they're like, oh, we like this, but we've got one just like it coming out. Uh, And so that's the thing, too. A lot of times rejection is not about you. You know, rejection is not, oh, we hated your book. It's terrible. You know, how dare you query seven drafts to us? You know, this piece of crap. Like, no, oh, man, we wish we could take this. But we already got this other book that's coming out. Right. We already got Matthew Felice's mm-hmm. Craft in the Real World. That's coming out. Um, I, I've got to look up the title, but there's another book coming out, um, I think, next month. That's another how to write a novel kind of book that's going to be very good. You know, they're going to be my direct competition. I'm glad I beat them to the market. by a <laughs> But that's the thing, too, is, you know, it's not even just writing the right book. It's the right book getting to the right person's desk at the right time. Mm, right. And also that person's book is not going to be written by you with your sense of humor and your heart, you know? Right. And everybody's yeah. got their own voice to put into their book. Yeah, so. it's true. And I was listening to some, I love like motivational speeches when I'm just feeling poopy. And I was listening to this one and it was saying that every time that you get rejected or someone's like, nope, you just say next. And just because that person didn't accept you or, you know, you just next and there's, there's someone else out there. So I love that. Like, I just imagine just like swiping over, like, I'm going to go to the next one, please. Thank you. No, thanks. Next, next, yeah. please. <laughs> and that's the thing too. Like once you've got a good query and it's sometimes worth paying somebody to have a look at your query because it's so much easier to see what's wrong with somebody else's description of their work than with your own description of your work, because our brains fill in stuff that's not on the page, you know, our brains smooth over information that, that really needs to be there. But if you've got a really good query or a really good proposal, everyone who says no is somebody who is self selecting out of the pool of the right person to sell my book to the world Mm. because you don't want just anybody. You want somebody who believes powerfully in your book and is ready to take it to the world. And if you're somebody who loves marketing, that might be a small press, that might be a medium-sized press, that might be a university press, that might be self-publishing, which if you're going to do it in a quality way, costs money and takes a lot of time. Or if you're someone who does not love marketing, you probably want to write literary fiction because that's about the only type of book that you can get away with saying I'm not doing any marketing, (laughs) you know? Uh, And I mean, that's changed. That's changed a lot in the world. 
yeah, as a fiction writer, you don't need a quote unquote platform. You just need to write a great book. Mm-hmm. As a nonfiction writer, you're going to need a platform, but it's not because we all have to be, you know, dirty, dirty marketers. It's because if you've written a book for grieving mom, grieving mom does not have time to hunt down your book. Grieving mom needs to already know your book exists. Mm. Grieving mom needs to already know you exist. And the people who need our words, especially for nonfiction, it's our job to deliberately reach out to them and start conversations with them and start finding out, oh, well, actually, you don't need to know this about writing. You need to know this other thing. And I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't started the conversation even before I wrote the book. And so I think, I mean, I do a lot with platform building. Um, I host a biweekly platform chat on Zoom called The Writer's Bridge. It's free. Everyone's welcome. Sign up for it at thewritersbridge.com. And we talk a lot about how platform is not clicks. Platform is not numbers. Platform is not going viral. Platform is having conversations with the people who are going to be your readers who need to know you and need to trust you and who you need to know what they need, you know? And if you're writing fiction, platform is an opportunity to bond with the other writers who write the same stuff you do and find out what's really hot in the genre, what's selling right now, who really loves their agents and would love to recommend them to me. You know, it's really about being part of a community. We think of writing as a very solitary art because we tend to practice it in a room by ourselves. You know, dancers Mm -hmm. take class, musicians have rehearsal. And writers very often work alone in a room. And so platform is actually a chance for us to be part of an existing community and create the community who really needs our work. Yeah, definitely. so true. And I, I love how you you put that in there on, in your email too, about that it's not about clicks and numbers. It's about that connection. And I love that, yeah. you know, like we're finding out through our platform of our, you know, writing and stuff is that it is about that connection, that personal you know, like, it's not just, you can't just put something out there and expect thousands and thousands of people to find it and like it. You know, you really have to build that slowly. Piece. Yeah. You start with like one person, person whatever. by person yes. who web out to each other and you sort of slowly start to form. And we've been doing this for a year now. And I feel like we're just kind of now finding our footing with, yes, you know, people contacting us and reaching out to us now. And because at know, first it was crickets. It was it just was like, yeah, like we're just anybody? posting and we, we have no followers. We have nothing. And we're like, we're just, I think that that power of consistency, mm-hmm. just showing up. Yes. And making those connections one person at a time. Yeah. And continuing on. Yeah. Yeah. And consistency really is the key, too. Um, with with the Writer's Bridge, I, I co-host that with a writer named Ashley Renard. And Ashley sold more than 10,000 copies of her self-published memoir. Good and 10,000 copies is good even for a regular book, even for like a traditionally published book. And it's phenomenal for a self-published book. That's great. And Ashley and I often joke that like, we built the Writer's Bridge to a mailing list of 2,500 people in about a year. And all we had to do was show up every week for an hour delivering quality content for free for a year. Yeah. You know, and and that's good. It's that that showing up. And so that's the other thing, too, I would say for authors building platforms, 
pick the stuff you like to do or you're going to be miserable. You know, yes. if you like Twitter, be on Twitter. If you don't like Twitter, don't be on Twitter. Just make a list totally. of the agents whose tweets you want to read, check in once a week and call it a wash. Yeah. I happen to really like writing blog posts and writing about writing. I really like public speaking. You know, I'm overjoyed when I get invited to be on somebody's podcast. So those are the things that I love to do. And that's, that's what I've built my platform on. But if I didn't like doing those things, I would do something else. Yeah. That is such great advice. It like really so many times we think we want to do something and then we find out the actual physical act of doing it, like not the job role, but the job duties every day. Don't like those. I just want to be a writer, but I don't want to actually do the things that it takes to write. <laughs> like, right. But to be a writer, we have but to show up and write. But that's not true for me. Like, <laughs> I love to write. Yeah. I love, like, like you were saying about the blogs, like, giving you a reason to show up and write. And even though it can be hard and painful, it's like, at the end of it, you're like, oh, I'm so glad I did that. Yeah. You know? Well, and it's like, too, it's like the messages that you're putting inside of your writing. Like, even if it could help one person or change one person. Like that's powerful. I think of that because I know when I read something and I'm like, oh my gosh, like literally when I was reading your book, this lovely seven drafts, and it was talking about like, uh, like inspiration to like write to the end. I have felt like I didn't know if my memoir was done. And I loved how you said, well, maybe you're not done like living to the end of your memoir. Yes. But then I literally was reading it and I stopped and I wrote like four pages in my kitchen literally this just happened just just got it out because of what you wrote to me so thank you for sharing your wisdom with us because it like you are so welcome yes you are so welcome there's a wonderful poem by sean thomas doherty it's very short and it's why bother because right now there is someone with a hole in their heart the exact shape of your words Mm. oh Oh, beautiful I love it. Thank you for sharing that. It's so gorgeous. tell us a little more about Writer's Bridge. I'm curious um, just how that all works. Yeah. So when when COVID happened and nobody could go anywhere or do anything, uh, another writer, Ashley Renard, and I uh, got together and we were both really interested in platform and marketing, uh, interested in social media, interested in blogging, interested in public speaking. And we realized a lot of people feel weird about this stuff. Um, I'm a former performer. I'm very used to, you know, being loud and out there and vulnerable and, and you know, presenting myself to the public. Ashley uh, is a former figure skating coach. And, you know, so she's also used to being aggressive and out there and, you know, dictating to large groups of people. And we thought, you know, let's do just a little like Zoom call and we'll just see who turns up and we'll talk about platform and what it is and what it isn't. And, and 65 people showed up and wow. we thought, oh, well, that's really nice. Yeah. And then the second meeting, a hundred people showed up oh my gosh. and wow. now we probably have between a hundred and 150 people live every wow. other week. And then probably another seven or 800 watch the recording. Oh my um, gosh. We always put it a recording. It's always free. Uh, people can sign up at the writersbridge.com. We send the zoom link out the day before, and then another reminder an hour before. And we just, really love doing it. So we had an episode all about Twitter. Like, are you going to be on Twitter? And the cool thing about Twitter is that it's Victorian in a way. So when you went to a country house party in the 1800s, 
you didn't have to be formally introduced to everyone else there for the weekend because the roof constituted an introduction. You count as, oh, we're already properly introduced because we're all being hosted by the same host. Mm-hmm. So it's okay for us to have a conversation without going through the whole rigmarole of, you know, my cousin's going to introduce me to you. Twitter is the same way. Once you're on Twitter, you're introduced. You get to start that conversation in the middle. You don't have to start at the very beginning. You know, so we love bringing in these like little tidbits. And, you know, we've done an episode on Instagram. The one that we have coming up uh, February 15th is, um, I think it's the 15th. It's always a Tuesday. The one we have coming up next is all about this concept called content buckets, about what are the major things that you talk about that are your writing, but also are you really into gardening? Are you really into your dog? You know, what do you talk about that makes you a whole person online? Mm. And so we've been doing this for, for a year and a half now. And we actually just started a new thing called the express lane because we noticed that people come to the writer's bridge and they get really enthusiastic, but they also get really overwhelmed. Um, Like we have our own hashtag and it's fire hose me. And it's because being at one of our events is like being hit with a fire hose of information. And so we just started a brand new newsletter. Uh, It actually just started February the 1st called the express lane. And that is Mondays and Fridays, people get an an email in their inbox with one specific platform building task that they're going to do that day that ideally should take about 15 minutes. Um, We talk about building a mailing list. We talk about finding your comp authors, which are the authors who you would be overjoyed to share a shelf with on a bookstore. And you watch your comp authors and you see, well, what are they doing to talk to their audience? And what kind of questions does their audience have that Danny Shapiro does not have time to answer every single person's question, but maybe I can write a blog that answers some of those people's questions and get them over to me. You know, Anne Lamott does not have time to answer every person's question about writing, so I can watch what kind of questions are being asked. Do I have the answers to some of those questions? Mm -hmm. And so I'm really excited. The Express Lane's a paid newsletter. Uh, That one is, uh, I want to say it's $19.99 a month or something like that. It's $2.59 for the year. And uh, we just got that started and we're really excited. So that's, and it's good too, because I like these small bite kind of projects, not only for the writers to do, but for me to generate, because it's so much easier for me to go, okay, I need to make an 11 minute video today that talks about how to be on Twitter. I need Mm -hmm. to make a worksheet today that talks about how do you find your comp authors. And that's, that's so much more doable for me than trying to launch a giant thing. Yeah, it is true, like bite-sized goals. And then you feel like you really did it. You accomplished accomplished. it. Yes. Do you post those on like Facebook or those emailed to people? Or how do people get a hold of those videos that you created? The um, So the Writer's Bridge, sign up at thewritersbridge.com. There is a the in front of it, thewritersbridge.com. And that has information about signing up for the main Writer's Bridge, which is free and which will always be free and happens both live and you get a replay link. And the Express Lane, which is our paid newsletter. And that also, you know, there will be like a pop-up box that comes up and goes, want to be on the Express Lane? Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So, yeah. Nice. That's yes. awesome. Yes. Well, um, I know we like to ask all of our authors about some of their favorite books and authors, um, just to get as much, you know, info about all your inspirations. So do you have a couple of books or an author you wanted to talk about? 
I do. Um, so right now, I find that with with uh, the pandemic and everything, I've been doing a lot of rereading because I find it comforting to mm-hmm. read something again when I already know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I've just reread all of Dorothy Sayers, who is a British mystery novelist from what we call, you know, the gold Agatha Christie and uh, Dorothy Sayers and, you know, people around that time span. And what I really love about her books is they're not just, oh, hey, we're going to solve a mystery. They're also about class and about feminism. And I think my favorite of her books is Gaudy Night, which is solving a mystery at Oxford, where there's actually like a poison pen, an anonymous letter writer who's making people's lives miserable. (laughs) There's not even an actual murder in the book. What it really is about, though, as they try to solve, you know, who's sending these horrible anonymous letters what it's really about is can you be a woman with an intellectual life and be a happily married woman Mm. or is it necessary that either the best of you goes to marriage or the best of you goes to your intellectual pursuit is it possible to have both interesting and what person can you have both with and I think that's Mm. and it's really it's really beautiful it's a really just beautiful book and and just very lovely and one of the neat things about the Dorothy Sayers books so Sayers um, around the mid-1930s she quit writing mysteries because her life's work was a translation of Dante's Inferno and she worked on finishing that and so another writer a woman named Jill Patton Walsh was brought in and Jill had previously written young adult and middle grade novels Jill was brought in by the Dorothy Sayers estate to finish a manuscript that Sayers had died with, with it being unfinished, and oh, she'd wow. left a plan. And then that book did very well. And so Jill Patton Walsh wrote three more books that I believe are, are, you know, the equal of the best of the Dorothy Sayers books and that continue on with that exploration of, you know, dead bodies, but also class feminism. What is Britain like before and after World War One? What is Britain like before and after World mm-hmm. War Two? How is society changing? And I, I just really love those. They really make me think. And and yet they're also just very charming and fun and, you know, drawing rooms and diamond necklaces. Mm, lovely. Thank you for sharing all of that. Yeah. And is there a message or anything that maybe we have missed in this conversation that you would like to give to maybe aspiring writers to maybe persevere when things get hard or when they give up on themselves? Is there anything that you could advice you could give perhaps? Yeah. So the world is not waiting to gently receive our genius. The world has a lot of competition for us to tell our story. And if you believe in your story and your story is powerful, then you should tell your story and don't let anybody stop you. Mm. Um, How much more time do we have in our, in our podcast? Uh, well, we usually go about an hour, so I think we've reached that moment, but we don't have to stick to, we are free to make our flexible. own timelines. <laughs> we are our own business owners. <laughs> right? Because if we have four minutes, yes. I will oh, yeah. read you something from my other book. We would love to. in literary magazines, which is kind of my message to author. We would love to. Okay? Yes, Definitely. please. All yes, right. Please. So this is from Get Published in Literary Magazines, and it's called Disinformation. Some closing thoughts. What nobody tells you as an artist is that every project starts at the beginning. 
not just the blank page, the empty stage, but that you have to reestablish your credentials and your quality every time. You can coast on reputation a little, but it doesn't last long if you don't deliver. What nobody tells you is that praise, a standing ovation, a good review, your teacher's approval makes you feel good for a day. But one line of internet criticism from a stranger reverberates in your skull forever. Frankly, I don't see what all the fuss is about. I tried to feel bad when that critic killed himself the next year, but I didn't. <laughs> what nobody tells your husband is that writing 3,000 words in a calm, soothing, supportive environment will still leave you too tired to call home at the end of the day. So does doing three 20-minute shows and then feeling guilty about it, but not guilty enough to call. What nobody tells you, the artist, the writer, is that spending an entire day being paid to do something you love is not the same as fun. It's often better than fun, but it's not fun. What nobody tells you is that spending an entire day being paid to, to do something you love is sometimes a lot less fun than spending an entire day doing something you love for free. What nobody tells you is that selling out is strangely comforting. Once you've decided to package your product and suck a little corporate dick for the chance to show most of what you like to do, but structured as a James Bond theme and wearing black and yellow because it goes with the logo, the large check that ensues will feel earned. That paying rent with your art money feels like finally growing up. That you probably can come up with 500 words about margarine and even feel proud of making it sound like something people would eat. Please don't. <laughs> what nobody tells you is that if you believe in yourself and dream big dreams, you will still come in second to somebody who worked hard or to a talentless hack related to the producer or to someone sleeping with the editor or to your best friend whom you will have to congratulate as sincerely as possible or to someone no better than you, and there will be no reason at all. Mm. What nobody tells you is that if you believe in yourself and dream big dreams and work hard, you can accomplish anything. But if you're willing to wear a sexy outfit while accomplishing it or include vampires, you'll get paid a lot more. <laughs> what nobody tells you is that you have to be the kind of person who can hear a hundred no's before you get to yes. And if you are not that kind of person, selling your art may not be for you. Here, let's practice. No, 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 no. I'll call you back. No, 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 no. We went with someone else. No, 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 no. My cousin will do it for free. No, 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 no. This did not fit our needs at this time. We sincerely wish you the best of luck placing it elsewhere. No, 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 no. No response means no. No, no, no. Next, no, no. My boss said no. My editor said no. No, no, no. Sorry, no. Speaking editorially, we should get to yes here, but it's better to experience the dissatisfaction of having our expectations unfulfilled so we can quit before dissatisfaction crushes us or so we can immunize ourselves. So we can say, I am blue. My work is blue. The blue of a thousand cerulean seas, the blue of Texas bluebells, the stunning blue of the sky from the top of the mountain, the deep blue of sapphires, the gentle blue of my mother's eyes, the best blue. They might want red. And what nobody tells you is that it's not up to you to be red and that whether or not you want to make your blue more of a purple or draw a crimson border around it or pass out violet tinted glasses to all your readers, it is a choice, your choice, your choice to change or stay the course. And neither of those are wrong. It is not a cruel world full of no. 
It is a beautiful world in which the one or many persons to whom your work, your particular personal work speaks, are waiting for you. Waiting for you to grow, to revise, to polish, to publicize, to sell, to share. Waiting for you to make art they love and will pay for. Go and find them. Get it, girl. (laughs) So good. That is awesome. Oh, you're such a talented writer. You are obviously a good editor. (laughs) Yeah, very amazing. Thank you. That. Yeah, I I love writing. I love editing. I love doing things over and over again. And you can just feel it. It just like exudes from you. Yes, it's like it's very apparent. This is your soul calling, lady. That's good. For sure. And so where can our listeners find your book? Where can they purchase this lovely seven drafts or your other books? Um, They can purchase it um, at at your giant book conglomerate online. They can purchase it by walking into your local independent bookstore, which is a great way to start getting to know the store that you one day want to sell your books. Mm. Um, They can find out more information at sevendrafts.com. And uh, I teach webinars and stuff. And usually the the most current events and everything are on my Instagram and my Twitter. And that is at Guerrilla Memoir, like Che Guevara, not the ape. <laughs> not the not monkeys. The, yes. ah, very Guerrilla good. Memoir. I love it. Awesome. Well, we will look you up and find you on Instagram and, and all, of the, all things. the things. And I, I'm excited about the Writer's Bridge. I want to look into that. Yes. So. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of your wisdom and your heart and your knowledge with us. We're Yes. Yes. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Yes. And happy publishing. I can't wait Whee! to see what Voices Rising Press does next. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. So many good things. Thank you so much for being here. We truly appreciate all of you listeners. Please head over to your favorite platform and rate, review, comment, and share. 